Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the truths that are here. And some of them here are overwhelming. There's beauty. There's majesty. There's gospel. There's encouragement. There's challenge. And our prayer this morning is that you will, by your spirit, not only live in us and control us and guide us, but let us see your glory that we might have great joy this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. What someone prays for you matters. And what a mature believer prays over you when you hear it sometimes can encourage you or comfort you, teach you, maybe even convict you. Have you ever been convicted by hearing somebody pray? It'll get you. I remember a moment in seminary in which I was challenged and encouraged by a professor's prayer. We were getting ready for an exam in Introduction to the Old Testament, and Dr. Daniel Block was our professor. And Dr. Block is a sweet guy and a wise man whose love for God's Word is contagious. But Dr. Block, when we were there, was very serious about us taking very seriously our education in the Word of God. And so, before an exam, Dr. Block prayed over us. And that, of course, is encouraging. It's, it's nice to be taking a test and have your professor pray for you, right? You would agree with this? However, his prayer was that God would allow us on our exam to perform at a level appropriate to our study and preparation for that exam. That was not encouraging, but it was challenging. I did learn something. As I said, though, you can learn from the prayers of others, and you can especially learn from the prayers that you read in the Bible. This morning we have the joy of continuing our look at Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, and we'll see here a prayer that Paul is praying for these people. And as we read it, we're going to learn three major things that should challenge us and encourage us as we live out our own Christian lives. So let's go ahead and jump right in with point number one of three. Walk in God's will by God's word. Walk in God's will by God's word. Look with me at Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10. And so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. The phrase, and so, at the beginning of that verse, ties it back to what we read last week. Paul rejoices over the things that he's heard about the Colossian church. 
He's heard that they have a genuine faith in Christ, love for each other, and hope in the promises of Christ. And Paul learned this from Epaphras, who was the man who brought the gospel to the Colossians from Paul, and who brought news of the Colossians to Paul. And because of all the good stuff that Paul has heard about the church at Colossae, he rejoices over them and he continually prays for them with gratitude to God. And now we get to see, finally, the kinds of requests that Paul makes on behalf of the Colossians. Paul prays, quote, "...asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will." in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now this is the major prayer that's going to cover much of the following verses. And Paul wants the Colossians to be filled with, and when you think of that word, think of controlled by, shaped by. He wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now right away, we need to know the answers to some very important questions if we're going to get this right. What does Paul mean by God's will? What did he mean specifically when he wrote it to the Colossians? And how do we apply it today to our own lives? So first... What is the will of God? You're going to get this verse right. You're going to get this prayer right. You've got to get this right. Now, if I ask you, what does the will of God mean? That should seem like a real simple question. But because of modern Christianity's approach to this topic, the issue has gotten far more jumbled and far more confused than it should be. If I ask you, if you're just thinking about it, what is God's will for you? Do you know? And, and what thoughts jump to your mind when you think about this? If you were to say, okay, I want to know God's will for me, what kind of thing are you thinking about? And I guarantee you that we're not all thinking about the same stuff. I guarantee you that we're not. Now, the Bible speaks of the will of God in two very different ways. On the one hand, the Bible speaks of the will of God as the things that God commands people to do, but He won't force them to occur. For example, 1 Peter 2.15 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I like that verse. God's will in that verse is that Christians do good and silence those who would be our critics. But let me ask you a simple question. Does that always happen? No, it doesn't. Many Christians fail from time to time and give ammunition to our critics. We don't do this kind of will of God. So, so when it says, this is the will of God, and we don't always do it, that's one kind of will of God. But there is another kind of the will of God in the Bible. And this is best illustrated in actions that God decrees happen 
And he makes sure they happen. So, for example, when it was God's will to create light, God said, let there be light. And light had no choice in the matter. Nothing could have ever stopped light from being. The will of God made it happen. So, there are two ways of speaking of the will of God. One is God's will of command. What God commands must happen, but which he will not force to happen. And you're doing good in silencing critics of the faith. That is part of the will of God's command, his will of command. God's command for us to be pure, to be faithful to our spouses, to be honest, to be evangelistic. All of those are the will of God, but God does not forcibly make every Christian do those things. They may or they may not happen. They're in his will of command. But there are other things that God wills and he makes happen. And he, we can say he decrees that they will occur. We call that his will of decree. When God elected his children for salvation, he made a decree that would not fail. If God wrote your name in the book of life before the foundation of the world, there is no way you weren't getting saved. And there's no way you're ever going to get lost. Also, though, the Bible talks about things like God predestining the crucifixion. Right? God, God planned that Jesus would come and that he would die under the rule and reign of the Romans and Pontius Pilate and all the rest. That was going to happen. Nothing was going to stop it. So, you understand two wills of God. Two understand is will of command, will of decree. What God wants to happen, but he won't make happen. And what God absolutely will see to it that it occurs. When you need to know the will of God, which one do you need to know? When Paul was praying for the Colossians, what was he wanting them to know? Was Paul saying that he wanted them to know the certain, predestined, decreed will of God? Or was Paul praying that the Colossians understand the commands and standards and ways of the Lord, the instructions of God? Do you see that there's a difference? Listen to this verse from the Old Testament that helps us to know which will of God we are to know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The decrees of God, what he will definitely make happen, are the secret things that belong to him. You and I do not get to know God's plan for us ten years from now. Or even ten minutes from now. At least not with certainty. But there is a will of God that God says, I command you to know. He says, I want you to hear the words of my law so that you and your children may obey them. Thus, biblically, God commands that his children learn and obey his will of command. God never, 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 never commands you to fish for his secret will of decree. 
You know why? Because he's going to do it anyway. He doesn't need your help and it cannot fail. Aren't you glad that that will exist, by the way? Because you can't mess it up. And why does God not tell you to seek that out? Because it's none of your business. This is why it makes so much sense to see that Paul is praying that the Colossians be filled with the knowledge of the will of God, meaning that Paul is praying that the Colossians learn the commands of God and follow those commands. Remember, the Colossians didn't have a completed New Testament to turn to. Let me ask you real quick. As Paul is writing this letter to these guys and he says this stuff, what would you say is one piece of evidence that the, that the people in Colossae did not have a completed New Testament? Give me your best guess. Go. Paul's still writing the letter. So clearly, they don't have it yet, right? This document was not composed in the cloud. I just thought of that right now. I kind of like it. Look. Obviously, Paul was writing letters to churches under the authority of God. This is probably about 60 A.D. The Colossians, though, were there and they needed right then to know the clear commands of God. They needed God to help them to avoid the cultural tendency to, to, to sort of co-mingle one religion with another and make something new that might have been happening around them. Now, by the way, look at verse 10 and notice that it affirms exactly what I've been saying to you about the will of God that the Colossians are supposed to know. That they would know the genuine commands of God so they could follow them. See, see, Paul says, I'm praying that God would fill you with the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? Ask yourself, why does he want them to know that will? Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul wants them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to God. How do we do that? How do we shape our walk? How do we shape our basic behavior so as to please God? The answer is, we do it by faithfully knowing and obeying the commands of God. Right? Thank you. Paul, Paul says that doing this stuff is going to result in you bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. To bear fruit in the Christian life is to do stuff that marks your life as being the life of a believer. So whether we're talking about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, the fruit of the Spirit is not a coconut, for those of you who know that song. How many of you know that song, by the way? None of you? You guys need more children's church in your life than if you don't know the fruit of the Spirit's not a coconut. I could sing it for you, but this is being recorded, so I will not. But ask me later, it's fun. But, you know, there's other aspects of, of bearing fruit, right? I mean, just participating in worship or loving other believers or, again, turning away from things that dishonor God, those are, those are the fruit in our life of being believers, 
And we only do those things rightly when we understand the commands of God and obey those commands of God. And get this, if you understand and obey the commands of God, you will increase in your knowledge of God. So all of this is actually a cycle that Paul's praying for them. He says, I want you to know the will of God. And the more you know the will of God, the more you'll be able to please God. And the more that you're able to please God, the more your life is going to bear fruit. And the more your life bears fruit, the more you're going to know God more and more. Which, of course, knowing God more and more helps you to live to please God, which helps you to bear fruit, which helps you to know God. And it goes over and over and over again. And so, Paul was praying that they would know the genuine, and let me add this word here, simple commands of God so they could obey. Now, the question comes to us. How do we do what Paul is praying for the Colossians to do? And the answer is, walk in God's will by God's word. There really is a method behind these points. That's what you're supposed to do. How do you learn the will of God that you are supposed to know? Remember, you don't get to know the secret stuff, right? You don't get to know where you're going to live 10 years from now. You don't get to know exactly whether God's going to give you health or not. And you don't get to know from God when there are two choices in front of you, which one's going to be easy and which one's going to be hard. You don't get to know. But what do you get to know? What do you get to know that you're actually supposed to know? How do you get to know that will that you're supposed to know? The answer is you find that will in the word of God. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says, "All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work." Now, by the way, what does being competent and equipped for good works sound like? Does that not sound like the very thing Paul's praying? I want you guys to understand and do what God wants you to understand and do. This is why Paul's praying that the Colossians be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. And the place that you find that will of God is the Bible rightly understood and applied. Now please hear me. I am not here affirming some sort of odd, mystical, superstitious use of the Bible. We do not look for a secret code in the Bible that tells us what city to live in or what potential job to take. Nor am I telling you that this is a call for you to pray and then listen for a secret voice to tell you something that you should do that you're actually free to decide on your own under the commands of God, whichever one you wish to do. Does that make sense to you, by the way? That was a long sentence. Like, for example, when you go to, I don't know, what store do you go to? Trader Joe's? Walmart? Depends on who you are, right? Do, do, do you stand in the aisle and go, Lord, please tell me white or wheat, white bread or wheat, just which one, Lord? <laughs> do you listen for a voice and the nudge of the spirit to pick a red or blue toothbrush? Let me tell you God's will. Are you married, by the way, married folks? 
Here's how you pick red or blue toothbrush. What color does your spouse have? Pick the other one. That's, that's the will right there. Because otherwise it's nasty. You get it? God has made you free to make a lot of decisions that you don't have to hear his voice on. And I'm not saying flip through the Bible to pick. There are people who do that. There's an old joke about that where a guy says, I need to know what God wants me to do. And he says, so I looked up a couple of verses. The first verse I looked up said, Judas went out and hanged himself. I thought, well, that's not good. So I flipped and found another verse that said, go and do likewise. <laughs> Those are both in the Bible. But you know what? If you took that as, a, as the will of God for you, you are misapplying the Bible. And that's not the way God speaks to you. God speaks through the word rightly read, rightly understood, and rightly applied. And if God hasn't spoken about something, and if there's no principle in the Bible about it, guess what, Christian? You're free. Pick. God did not command red or blue toothbrushes. Now, there's a whole thing in the book of Esther about being good not to stink, so you might be able to make something about having a toothbrush that could be the will of God. You want to know about that later, don't you? Look, we read the Bible in its context, we learn what the author intended to communicate, and then we apply that truth to our lives so that we can please God by knowing his clear commands. As we obey the clear commands of God in God's word, we can walk in God's will by God's word. That's what Paul's praying for the Colossians. That's what you need to get from this. You want to know God's will? You want to obey God's will? Love his word. Okay, let's keep going. I could rant on this all day long. But let's look at verse 11, and we'll see another category of prayer and encouragement for us. It's in point number two, and that is that you find the strength of God in the power of God. Find the strength of God in the power of God. Look at verse 11. Paul prays, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now look, walking in the will of God in this fallen world is hard. You know that, right? Sometimes things don't go well. Sometimes even when we obey God, circumstances make life hard. Or sometimes even when we obey God, people around us make life hard. Paul knows it, and that's why he prays the next line for the Colossians. He prays that the people of Colossae be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now, y'all don't need to know any Greek to know that that is some serious strengthening that Paul's praying for there. Paul asks that, that God strengthen them. That's good. If I asked that God strengthen you, you would like that, right? So far. But then he asked that God strengthen them with all power. That's really good. But then he asked that God strengthen them with this power according to God's glorious might. That is incredible. God's might is limitless. God's glory, his worth, his weightiness is infinite. And if God strengthens us with power according to the might of his glory and his worth, that is a strength that is beyond anything we could ever imagine. And so Paul is actually praying that God strengthen the people with the strength of God himself. 
But then why? Why does Paul want them to have the strength of God? There are three things that Paul wants them to have. Endurance, patience, and joy. Paul asked that the people be strengthened for all endurance. And and the word endurance there is a word that means standing strong under difficult circumstances. Endurance is what Job had when he suffered without completely losing it. Endurance is what Paul had when he went through persecutions and hardships and shipwrecks and beatings and sicknesses and, and, and didn't lose his mind. Paul wants God to use his infinite power to strengthen the Colossians so that they can stand strong even in the face of the hardships of life. And let me say to us all, Oh my goodness, do we need that. We need strength for endurance because we live in a hard world where hard things happen. Medical problems come. And we need God to give us the courage to bear the strain. Financial troubles come. And we need God to give us the courage that we need to press on. Persecutions come. Governments make really stupid decisions. And we need the power of God to weave steel into our character so that we can face a harsh world without ourselves crumbling. Paul also prays that God strengthen the Colossians for patience. Patience here is a state of emotional calm in the face of being provoked or irritated. And this has more to do with people than with circumstances. Let's be honest with each other. We're friends. You have anybody in your life that just rubs you the wrong way? Don't name them because they may be in the room. (laughs) Do you know folks? I mean, is it possible that you would even know Christian folks who would annoy you? Of course you do. I might be one of them. If not, give me time. I get there. It, 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 It makes sense, doesn't it? That Paul would pray that God strengthen his people with the ability to be calm and steady in proximity to people that just drive them nuts. Isn't it nice to know that's in the Bible, by the way? But notice the last word here. Now, different Bible translations, by the way, will put that last phrase as part of this sentence or the next. But it really fits best here because it's not redundant here. Paul prays that God strengthen the Colossians for endurance and patience with joy. Oh, come on. I mean, joy is a state that is bigger and stronger than happiness. Joy is strength that exists, warmth, hope that exists regardless of your circumstances. The word happiness in English comes from the same concept as the word happen. Right? If good things happen, I can be happy. 
That's how that word works. But joy isn't like that. Joy doesn't shift based on circumstances. It is solid even in the face of hardships. It is being able to have hope even in the face of hardships. And and that's tough. And here, listen, folks, what makes Christians different, look different than others in the world is the ability to have a God-given joy in the face of hardships. When you endure difficult circumstances with joy, you make the world wonder, how in the world can that be possible? How can you keep on? And how can you face it? And how can you have this inner peace when everything's crumbling around you? That makes you look like the God you serve is real. And when we're patient with people who annoy us or don't like us or hate us or are mean to us, but can do it with joy, we look different than the world around us to the glory of God. We need for God, by His mighty power and glory, to fill us with joy so we can endure and be patient in such a way as to show the world the glory of God. So Christians, find the strength of God and the power of God. We need what Paul prayed for the Colossians. And in this instance, the best choice would be for us to pray for each other what Paul prayed for the Colossians. God, please strengthen us with your mighty strength so that we can endure and be patient with joy. Remind yourself how much you need this. Because doesn't this sound like stuff you need? And, and, and share with others your needs here. Tell the truth. Now again, be careful. Don't walk up to somebody after service and say, I just want you to know, you annoy me to death. So would you please pray that God give me patience with you? That, that's probably not nice on your part. So think it, don't say it. No, 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 don't, don't do that either. Just, just pray. And pray with each other. And pray for each other. And look to the power of God so that we can stand in a world that's just not easy. And then our third point, our final point for this morning, is that we would give thanks to God for the gospel. Give thanks to God for the gospel. Verses 12 to 14. Paul prays, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the final aspect of the prayer here that we see involves thanksgiving. And Paul prays that the Colossians would be the kind of people who, with the knowledge of God and the strength of God, have are able to give proper gratitude to God for the glorious gospel of Christ. So Paul says, first, God the Father, get this, listen to this. God the Father, if you're a Christian, has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is a beautiful way to talk about our salvation. Now, the inheritance of the saints is a way to think about being brought into the promise of God as part of the family of God. 
Back in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were rescued out of Egypt and they went to the promised land, remember, they were granted an inheritance. They, they, were, they were granted a part of the land to live in, to be theirs. The whole land was divvied up among the tribes, right? If you don't remember that, read like the second half of the book of Joshua because it's all about borders and boundaries and stuff. And that's beautiful. It's beautiful because it shows God keeping his promises and giving people their inheritance. We love that. But for us, the inheritance, Christians, it's something greater than a mere piece of property in the physical land of Israel. God has actually given us an inheritance as part of his eternal family and as part of his spiritual kingdom. He has made believers into his children with all the privileges associated with that joyful reality. The possession that we have is a home forever with Christ. And take note of a word there. What does it say he did with us to give us that inheritance? Look at your Bibles. It says he has qualified us. Will you stop a moment and feel with me? Have you ever felt qualified to stand in the presence of a holy God? Yeah, I'm good enough for that. Have you ever felt actually good enough to look upon the blazing perfection of the only perfect being in the universe or beyond? No. Back in the Old Testament, people knew that for them to see the full perfection of God would be for them to be destroyed by His holiness. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, Isaiah says, Woe to me, I'm undone. Literally, I am disintegrating. I am falling to pieces. I am shattering. Because I'm getting a glimpse of the glory of God. Do we dare consider ourselves worthy, qualified to see God? Listen to Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5. We heard it earlier. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Who's qualified to go see God? Who's qualified to go stand in front of God? Here's the answer. You ready? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Does that sound like you? You're going to say, man, I do have clean hands and a pure heart. That's me. The Bible says he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Are you qualified? Not on your own. Christians, let's find hope here. Not on your own. Are your hands clean? Is your heart pure? Is your soul clear from any deceit ever? Not on your own, it's not. But God qualifies us. Do you feel the joy? Verse 5 of Psalm 24 talks about the people receiving righteousness as a gift. From God. 
It is God's action. In the New Testament, John 1, 12 and 13 says this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, the same picture is there in John. God gives people who believe in Christ the right to become children of God. But we find that they believe and they receive Christ not by their own power, not by the will of man, but by the will and the power of God. So for God to call you and me qualified to have an inheritance with the saints is for God to take sinners who are totally unqualified and to give to us a righteousness that is completely from Him. He does the work, not us. He gives us the faith that we need, not us. And He gets the glory for doing this amazing thing. Do you get how amazing this is? Does this stir gratitude in your heart? Verses 13 and 14 of Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul says, I want you guys to have proper gratitude for the gospel. And he gives us one more gorgeous picture. He says, God transferred his children from the domain or the kingdom or the rule of darkness. He transferred them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Get this picture. We used to be citizens of darkness. We used to be completely identified with that which was opposed to God. We were part of the enemy land. But God, by His grace, for His glory, reached into enemy territory and grabbed us and moved us out of the land of destruction and out of the land of death. And He gave us a citizenship in a new land. Instead of killing us, which is what we deserve, He gives us the ability, the right, the home to be part of the kingdom of His beloved Son. You get a brand new passport with a brand new ID. I love that Paul calls Jesus God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Now Paul's magnifying Jesus right there. He wants you to be sure and understand that Jesus, like the Father, is fully the source of your hope and fully the source of your salvation because that's what Colossians is about in so many ways. And as we keep studying, we're going to see Paul argue time and time again for the, the sufficiency and the deity of Christ. But here we see in Jesus we have two things, redemption and forgiveness. Two terms that focus us on a major reality of how we're rescued by God. Very seldom, very seldom, we see these words used together by Paul. We need to see them as significant. Redemption is a slave market word. To redeem is to emancipate. It is to set a slave free by paying a price for him or her. There was no rescue of the children of God without a price being paid for our sins. Our rescue cost the blood and the very life of the infinitely precious Son of God. So while grace is free, there is no such thing as a salvation that's cheap. 
And forgiveness is a word that highlights the removal of guilt and its consequences. Not only did God through Christ pay the price for our sin, but he also then removed our guilt from us in order to make us able to live in his presence and under his glory forever. And this helps us to understand biblical forgiveness like we've been talking in our Sunday school class, right? Forgiveness is not merely that I let go of bad feelings I have towards somebody who wronged me. Forgiveness includes the concept that the one who was offended bears the cost of the offense in order to be reconciled to a guilty person who is repenting. We offended God with our sin. God paid the cost of justice for our sins by himself and to himself. Then, upon our repentance and faith, God removes the barrier that our sin creates between us and him so he can welcome us into the inheritance of the saints in light. And if you understand all this, you've got to see how beautiful it is. We were guilty. We were headed for destruction. God paid the price to rescue us and make us his through the work of Christ. We did nothing to earn it. God did it all. He is so good. He is so giving. He is worthy of our thanks. So give thanks to God for the gospel. So Christians, today we learn From the prayer of Paul. Walk in God's will by God's word. Find the strength of God in the power of God. And give thanks to God for the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you don't really know about where you stand with Jesus, I urge you to get under the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus brought us here this morning that we might hear his word. And his command is for everybody in the world to acknowledge that we're guilty before God. And he promises that he will forgive anybody who will turn away from their sins and trust in Jesus to be rescued. So this morning, decide that you shouldn't be the boss of your own life. Decide that you're willing to follow God in the way that he commands. And put your faith in Jesus. Trust him, believe in him and his finished work. Believe that he can and will take away your sins because of his death and his resurrection. And then, you do that stuff, if God leads you there, you can join us in thanking God for the beauty of the gospel. Would you bow with me and pray? Lord, there is so, so much here that we need. Help us to love your word and find your will there. Help us to avoid the temptation toward a mysticism that would make us want you to tell us the secrets of our future and which path is the simplest and easiest. But instead, help us to know that your commands are enough. Help us to treasure your word. Help us to find strength in you to endure hardships and to love each other with joy, to be patient. And Lord, please help us to love the gospel and be changed by it. Magnify your name as you work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.
Number 120, Wonderful Merciful Savior.